and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. This is episode 144, and uh, once again, we're doing our little follow-up episode here. I am Rod Barnett. And I am Beth Norris. And we are here to uh, play around with a few Sherlock Holmes radio adaptations. Actually, they are adaptations this time around, not just radio shows. Since this movie, uh, the movie we just covered, Sherlock Holmes in Washington from 1943, was the first of the Universal series to not be based on any of Conan Doyle's actual stories, I thought it might be a good idea to focus on uh, a couple of radio adaptations from different decades that actually do adapt an Arthur Conan Doyle story. So... In that respect, Beth went to work and found uh, a couple of, of favorites for her. For her. She uh, sampled a number of different adaptations of certain stories and decided upon uh, these. So, um, first up, the uh, we're going to start in the 1950s with a BBC radio series. Had you ever listened? I had never listened to any of these. Uh, these 1950s, well, actually the series, the radio series that this is taken from, uh, started in 1952 and went all the way to 1969, which is a pretty long run. And I thought, my God, how many episodes did they produce? And you realize they only did like six or eight a year. Because, of course, it's Britain. It's not like they produce seven billion episodes per year. The production level uh, is high, but the quantity is low. <laughs> so... Uh, during this entire series of the the, the, the run of the show for, geez, 17 years? 16 years? 17 years? My goodness. Um, the, the characters of Holmes and Watson were played by Carlton Hobbs. That was Holmes. And Norman Shelley. And uh, a couple of interesting actors. I like both of these guys and I like their approach to the story. But I have to say, like I said, I've not seen... Or I'm sorry. I have not heard until this that I'm aware of, any of their performances. Had you? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I had, ha- I had, um, you know me, I've, I've sought up out every different type of, you know, radio show there is. And so I've sampled just about all of them. Um, I like all the, there's something to like about all the different versions. There's the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and then the new Sherlock Holmes and then, just very various cycles. Yeah, I'm actually finding myself enjoying when Tom Conway took over near the end of the run along with Nigel Bruce, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we all have our favorites, and, you know, Basil happens to be one of mine, but uh, I have to say, Hobbs and Shelley do a really, really good job. And they bring, um, they definitely bring a more English flair to things. So they're, um, in this one, it, it, it tickled me a little bit because in there, Watson ends up having kind of, some kind of brogue. He seems, he sounds sometimes like he's either doing just a little bit Scottish or Irish or, or maybe huh. it's just a English brogue that's like from a certain, um, you know, there's all kinds of different. Oh, you mean like areas. from a different region in England, right? Okay. A different region. So I didn't know, but it was like, oh, he's like, it, but it, it was it was it was very entertaining. So, yeah, I like both of them. They do. They both do a very good job. Well, I was unaware of these two actors primarily, I guess, because both of them, um, their most of their work was either on the stage 
or on radio. On uh, Both of them were heavy voice actors. I mean, a lot of roles over decades and decades. As a matter of fact, with uh, with Norman Shelley, the guy who plays Watson, he is he he's prominent as a um, voice actor for years and years and years. His list of credits on radio is, is just completely insane, but his list of uh, of f- f- uh, film roles is very small. I mean, you'll see him pop up here and there in a few things. Uh, he did do a fair amount of television, but at the same time. I mean, you know, he 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 popped up in like uh, in like a I think an almost non-speaking role as a, a pipe-smoking guest in Hammer's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Uh, he had a role <laughs> as a detective in the 1973 uh, miniseries Jack the Ripper. But uh, in general, Norman Shelley was a voice actor, and interestingly enough, he was very well known uh, at, for for his uh, impersonation of Winston Churchill. As a matter of fact. Uh, there is a, uh, more than a few. There, there, there's more than a little whiff of scandal about the possibility that uh, sometimes he impersonated him without the public knowing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? For, yeah, for, to, to to like re, to like reread or record some certain of his speeches and things of that nature that would be, that would only be broadcast, you know, on radio. Or over the wireless, as they would say. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I, I don't know all the details on that, but what I've read is uh, very intriguing. So uh, our Watson here uh, was a consummate Churchill impersonator and may have actually done it specifically for the government at times, says. So uh, there's that. Now, Charlton Hobbs, the, the actor who plays Holmes in this, um, uh, he, he did, a, he had a small role in uh, Hammer, well, not, it's not a Hammer film, it's uh, an Amicus film, The the House That Dripped Blood in, in the 70s. Uh, he was a, a Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, uh, trained actor, did a lot of stage work, as you, could, as you could tell, but also just tons of voice work on the radio, lots of radio dramas. And uh, that that is why uh, I know very little of his work because it's just not something that you know you, you can't put a name to a face. It's only his voice, and I'm terrible with voices. But he was extraordinarily well thought of to the point where he was uh, named an officer of the British Empire, the the OBE in 1969 for his contributions to uh, film film and ra- film television and radio. But I'm guessing mostly television and mostly radio. Although his uh, stage work apparently was stellar. And uh, so that is uh, th- that's a pair of actors there who, like I say, once you realize, oh, they did this series of radio shows of playing Holmes and Watson for so many years, but yeah, there's there's only like six or eight of them produced a year. So treasure the ones we've still got our hands on, folks. Those are those are worth those are worth gold, and uh, this one is no exception. Um, you left out though in your intro that one of the things we were doing here when we picked these shows. Were, was we were going for um, something where Sherlock was involved with Americans. Oh, that's right. That's, that was the stipulation you put in place. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So uh, I guess because, well, if he's going to go to Washington, D.C., perhaps we should meddle with the Americans again. <laughs> I, that, I, that, I know that's not a British accent. That's a miserable, I don't know, that's mid, mid-Atlantic, that you know, uh, moron being strangled on a steamer ship. I don't know. <laughs> Nevertheless, what is what is our first story here that these two fine fellows are going to play the play the roles in? Uh, this is the Noble Bachelor. Okay. And uh, it, it it I picked it because it it actually kind of tickles me. I love this story. Wait, what uh, aspect of it? Well, I love it any time that Sherlock 
has a posh boy get up his nose and then he's able to to snub them and so in this one they put them in their place exactly yeah, <laughs> there, yeah. there is a very socially high person you know he's an, a nobleman i guess you would say a gentleman of name and he and, cuts their legs out from under them yeah. yeah exactly very very subtly very politely and yet still he's so, clearly doing it yes very clearly doing it so he you know, Sherlock gets to do a little bit of funny here uh, because he's got this arrogant man and, you know, he gets to kind of, <clears throat> several times doing it during the show, he puts him in his place, but then at the end, he, he, he really kind of gets him. So I don't want to give everything away. No, 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 of course not. Let, but, it, um, let, let everybody soak it in. Uh, one of the things that I like a lot about this is the, the pacing seems a little... Uh, a little casual, which actually had a tendency to draw had a tendency to draw me in, which was which was quite, quite nice. It was it was similar to the feeling I get from reading uh, the original stories, and I don't know if that's something they were aiming for, or if it was just an accident of the way they produced these things. But I really, really did enjoy the pace and tone of this episode. Uh, hoping to hear more of these soon. And he in this one, Sherlock, you could tell like I always got the feeling that Sherlock was entertained by American ways and whims and found uh-huh. them found them entertaining. Those, but, uh, those strange cousins <clears throat> to the East, yes. Exactly. But he was he's very entertained. Oh, I'm sorry, it would be strange cousins to the West. I can't even picture a globe anymore. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> Too much COVID for you. Uh, I, maybe. But, I don't know. <laughs> but he is, he is hardly entertained by the drama put in place by the American uh, lady in this this tale, and um, it, it it actually there was I was going to say there is a this is actually kind of historically accurate in that there was a time an era in English history where America was just coming into lots and lots of money, and the Americans were basically coming to, over to England and bringing their kids and their pocketbooks to try to buy a title. <laughs> so basically... <laughs> Which you can do on Groupon these days. So basically, they were using their children to buy a position. So yeah. they were, you know, they had money and so they would put a big dowry on their uh, little girl. Trying to buy themselves into a form of uh, the gentry or the ro- or royalty. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well then we'll just leap right into this from uh, 1959, August 18th, 1959. This is uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes' story, The Noble Bachelor from BBC Radio. Hello. Uh, 221B Baker Street, please, Gabby. The BBC presents The Noble Bachelor by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, adapted for radio by Michael Hardwick with Carlton Hobbs as Sherlock Holmes and Norman Shelley as Dr. Watson. It was a few weeks before my marriage in 1887, during the days when I was still sharing rooms with Sherlock Holmes in Baker Street. I had remained indoors all day, for the weather had taken a sudden turn to rain with high autumnal winds. The Jezail bullets, which I had brought back in one of my limbs as a relic of my Afghan campaign, throbbed with dull persistency. With my body in one easy chair and my legs upon another, I'd surrounded myself with a cloud of newspapers. 
And when at last I'd saturated myself with the news of the day, I tossed them all aside and lay listless, speculating lazily upon the huge crest and monogram on the envelope upon the table, which awaited my friend's return. Well, Holmes, here's a very fashionable epistle. Oh, this looks like one of those social summonses which call upon a man either to be bored or to lie. Oh, come, it may prove to be something of interest after all. Not social, then. Distinctly professional. Hmm. And from a noble client. One of the highest in England. I don't feel I congratulate you. I assure you, Watson, without affectation, that the status of my client is a matter of less moment to be of the interest of his case. Yes, of course, of course. It's just possible, however, that that also may not be wanting in this new investigation. Uh, you've been reading the papers diligently of late, have you not? <laughs> Looks like it. <laughs> I've had nothing else to do. Well, it's fortunate. You will perhaps be able to post me up. I read nothing except criminal news in the agony column. The latter is always instructive. Mm. But if you followed recent events so closely, you must have read about Lord St. Simon and his wedding. Oh, yes, with the deepest interest. Now, the letter which I hold in my hand is from Lord St. Simon. This is what he says. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Lord Backwater tells me that I may place implicit reliance upon your judgment and discretion. I have determined, therefore, to call upon you and to consult you in reference to the very painful event which has occurred in connection with my wedding. Mm -hmm. Mr. Lestrade of Scotland Yard is acting already in the matter, but he assures me that he sees no objection to your cooperation and that he even thinks that it might be of some assistance. (laughs) (laughs) I will call at four o'clock in the afternoon, and should you have any other engagement at that time... I hope you will postpone it, hmm. as this is a matter of paramount importance, your faithfully, etc. It's dated from Grosvenor Mansions and uh, written with a quill pen. Ah, the noble lord has had the misfortune to get a smear of ink upon the outer side of his right little finger. Hmm, it's four o'clock. It's uh, past three now. Then I have just time, with your assistance, to get clear upon the subject. Now, turn over those papers and arrange the extracts in their order of time. Have the goodness to pass me, Mr. Sisters, will you? Hmm? Oh, yes. Here you are. Yes. And uh, I will take a glance as to who our client is. Here's one, yes. Yes, that'll do very well. Ah, yes, here he is. Robert Walsingham de Vere St. Simon, second son of the Duke of Balmoral, born 1846. That makes him 41 years of age. Mature for marriage. Uh, Was undersecretary for the colonies in a late administration. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, they inherit Plantagenet blood by direct descent and Tudor on the distaff side. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's nothing very instructive in all this. I must turn to you, Watson, for something more solid. Well, I've had very little difficulty in finding what you want. The facts are quite recent. There was a paragraph in one of the society papers. Um, ah, here it is. There will soon be a call for protection in the marriage market, for the present free trade principle appears to tell heavily against our home product. One by one, the management of the noble houses of Great Britain is passing into the hands of our fair cousins from across the Atlantic. Lord St. Simon, who has... 
uh, shown himself for over 20 years proof against the little god's arrows, <laughs> has now definitely announced his approaching marriage with Miss Hattie Doran, the fascinating daughter of a Californian millionaire. Miss Doran is an only child, and it is currently reported that her dowry will run to considerably over six figures. Indeed. As it is an open secret that the Duke of Balmoral has been compelled to sell his pictures within the last few years, and as Lord St. Simon has no providence, save the small state of Birchmore, it is obvious that the Californian heiress is not the only gainer by the alliance. Anything more? Oh, yes, plenty. Yes, uh, there's a note here to say that the marriage would be an absolutely quiet one at St. George's Hanover Square, and that the party would return to the furnished house at Lancaster Gate, which has been taken by Mr. Aloysius Doran. Two days later, Westminster Gazette, that's Wednesday last, October the 17th, there's a curt announcement that the wedding had taken place. Well, those were all the notices that appeared before the disappearance of the bride. Before, before the what? The vanishing of the lady. When did she vanish, then? At the wedding breakfast. Indeed. Well, this is more interesting than it promised to be. Quite dramatic, in fact. Yes, it struck me as being a little out of the common. And they often vanish before the ceremony and occasionally during the honeymoon. But I cannot call to mind anything quite so prompt as this. Ah, but there's a ring at the bell. And as the clock makes it a few minutes after four, I have no doubt that this will prove to be our noble client. No, don't dream of going, Watson. I very much prefer having a witness, if only as a check to my own memory. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed this case for words. Lord Robert and Simon. Good day, Lord and Simon. Good day, Mr. Oh, oh, pray take the basket chair. Now, uh, this is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. I draw up a little to fire, and we shall talk this matter over. A most painful matter to me, as you can most readily imagine, Mr. Holmes. I have been cut to the quick. I understand you have already managed several delicate cases of this sort, sir, though I presume that they were hardly from the same class of society. No, I am descending. I beg your pardon? My last client of the sort was a king. Oh, really? I had no idea. And which king? Hmm? Uh, the king of Scandinavia. What, has he lost his wife? You can understand that I extend to the affairs of my other clients the same secrecy which I promised to you no. in yours. Of course. Very right. Very right. I'm sure I beg your pardon. Now, as to my own case, I am ready to give you any information which may assist you in forming an opinion. Thank you. Well, I've already learned something of it from the public prints. Nothing more. I think I may arrive at my facts most directly by questioning you. Pray do so. Now, when did you first meet Miss Hattie Doran? In San Francisco, a year ago. Did you become engaged then? No. But you were on a friendly footing. I was amused by her society, and she could see that I was amused. Her father is very rich. He was said to be the richest man on the uh, Pacific Slope. And how did he make his money? In mining. He had nothing a few years ago. Then he struck gold, invested it, and came up by leaps and bounds. Uh, my wife was 20 before her father became a rich man. During that time, she ran free in a mining camp, so that her education has come from nature rather than from the schoolmaster. She is what we call in England, I believe, a tomboy. Quite. She is uh, impetuous, uh, volcanic, I was about to say. But on the other hand, I would not have given her the name which I have the honor to bear 
had I not thought her to be, at bottom, a noble woman. The young lady came to London then, and you renewed your acquaintance? Yes. Uh, her father brought her over for this last season. I met her several times. We became engaged. I have now married her. She brought, I understand, a considerable dowry. No more than is usual in my family. And this, of course, remains to you since the marriage is the fait accompli. I really have made no inquiries on the subject. Oh, very naturally not. On the morning of the wedding, was she in good spirits? Never better. She was as bright as possible until after the ceremony. And did you observe any change in her then? Well, to tell the truth, I saw then the first signs that her temper was a little sharp. The incident was too trivial to relate. It had no possible bearing on the case. Play let us have it for all that. Oh, it's childish. Uh, she uh, dropped her bouquet as we went towards the vestry. She was passing the front pew at the time, and it fell over into the pew. There was a moment's delay, but the gentleman in the pew handed it up to her again. It, it didn't appear to be the worst for the fall. Yet, when I spoke to her about it, she answered me abruptly. In the carriage, on our way home, she seemed absurdly agitated over so trifling a call. Indeed. You you say there was a gentleman in the pew. Some of the general public were present then. Oh, yes. It's impossible to exclude them when the church is open. This gentleman was one of your wife's friends? No, no. I, I called him a gentleman by courtesy. He was quite a common-looking person. I hardly noticed his appearance. Really... I think we're wandering rather far from the point. At any rate, Lady St. Simon returned from the wedding in a less cheerful frame of mind than she had gone to it. Uh, what did she do on re-entering her father's house? I saw her in close conversation with her maid, Alice. A confidential servant? A little too much so. She's an American. She came from California with her. It seemed to me that her mistress allowed her to take great liberties. But still, of course, in America, they look upon these things in a different way. You did not overhear what they said... Lady St. Simon said something about jumping a claim. She was accustomed to using slang of that kind. I had no idea what it meant. Mm, American slang is very expressive sometimes. And what did your wife do next? She went into the breakfast room. On your arm? No, alone. She was very independent in little matters like that. Then, after we had sat down for ten minutes or so, she rose hurriedly, muttered some words of apology and left the room. She never came back. Her maid says she went to her room, covered her bride's dress with a long ulster, put on a bonnet, and went out. One of the footmen remembered seeing a lady leave, but he refused to credit that it could have been his mistress. He naturally believed she was inside. Quite so. Afterwards, my wife is said to have been seen walking to Hyde Park with the woman who had caused the disturbance earlier on. The disturbance? Uh, yes. Uh, after we had returned from the church, uh, this woman apparently tried to follow us into the house. She had to be ejected by the butler and the footman. Yes, but why should she want to force her way? Well, Mr. Holmes, uh, she claimed that um, she and I... Uh, oh. Well, um, to tell the truth, her name is Flora Miller. She used to be a dancer at the Allegro. I have not treated her ungenerously, and she's no just cause for complaint against me, but you know what women are, Mr. Holmes. She wrote me dreadful letters when she heard I was to be married. In fact, the reason I had the marriage celebrated so quietly was because I feared there might be a scandal at the church. Did your wife hear this disturbance? No, thank goodness she didn't. And yet she was seen walking with this very woman afterwards? Yes. And Mr. Lestrade of Scotland Yard looks upon it as very serious. It is thought that Flora decoyed my wife out and laid some terrible trap for her. I understand that she's now in custody. Well, it's a possible supposition. You think so, too? I don't think Flora would hurt a fly. I didn't say a probable one. Still, 
jealousy is a strange transformer of character. Pray then, Lord St. Simon, what is your own theory as to what took place? Oh, really? I came to seek a theory, not to propound one. Since you ask me, it has occurred to me that the excitement, the consciousness that she had made so immense a social stride may have caused some little nervous disturbance to my wife. In short, that she had become suddenly deranged? Well, when I consider that she has turned her back, I will not say upon me, but upon so much that many have aspired to without reason, I can hardly explain it in any other fashion. Well, that is certainly a conceivable hypothesis. And now, Lord St. Simon, I think I have nearly all my data... Oh, may I ask whether you and your wife were seated at the breakfast table so that you could see out of the window? We could see the other side of the road and the park. Quite so. Then I do not think I need to take you any longer. I will communicate with you. Um, should you be fortunate enough to solve this problem? Oh, I have solved it. Uh, what was that? I say I have solved it. Uh, where, then, is my wife? That is a detail which I shall speedily supply. I am afraid it will take wiser heads than yours and mine. Good day to you, gentlemen. Good day, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good of Lord St. Simon to honour my head by putting it on a level with his own. Well, I think I shall have a whiskey and soda and a cigar after all that cross-questioning. Good. I had formed my conclusions as to the case before our cloud was nearly done. My dear Holmes. Uh, I have notes of several similar cases, though, as I remarked before, none of them were quite as prompt. My whole examination has turned my conjecture into a certainty. Circumstantial evidence is occasionally very convincing. Yes, I've heard all you've heard. Without, however, the knowledge of pre-existing cases which serves me so well. Mm. There was a parallel instance in Aberdeen some years back, and there was something on very much the same lines at Munich. The year after the Franco-Prussian War is one of these cases. Oh, but hello, here is Lestrade. Ah, you'll find an extra tumbler on the sideboard, and there are cigars in the box, Lestrade. Well, thank you. Evening, Dr. Watson. Evening, Inspector. Well, what's up, then? You look dissatisfied. Mm, I feel dissatisfied. This is an infernal sign marriage case. I can't make head nor tail of the business. Really? You surprised me. Oh, do sit down. Whoever heard of such a mixed affair? Every clue seems to slip through my fingers. I've been at work on it all day. And very wet it seems to have made you. Well, I've been dragging the serpentine. In heaven's name, what for? Looking for the body of Lady St. Simon. <laughs> have you dragged the basin of the Trafalgar Square fountain? Why? What do you mean? Because you've just as good a chance of finding this lady there as in the serpentine. I suppose you know all about it. Well, I've only just heard the facts, but my mind is made up. Oh, indeed. Then you think that the serpentine plays no part in the matter? I think it very unlikely. Mm, perhaps you'll kindly explain how it is we found these nearly. I have them here in my bag. Here, there's a little nut for you to crack, Master Holmes. Oh, indeed. See, Watson? Mm, a wedding dress, white satin shoes, and a bride's wreath and veil. And a wedding ring. You dragged these from the serpentine? No. They were found near the bank by a parkkeeper. They were identified as her clothes. Seemed to me that if the clothes were there, the body wouldn't be far off. Now, by the same brilliant reasoning, every man's body is to be found in the neighbourhood of his wardrobe. Hmm? And pray, what did you hope to arrive at through this? Some evidence implicating Flora Miller in the disappearance. I'm afraid you'll find it difficult. Hmm. Well, you indeed now. 
And I'm afraid, Mr. Holmes, that you're not very practical with your deductions and your inference. This dress does implicate Miss Thora Miller. And how? In the dress is a pocket. In the pocket is a card case. In the card case is a note. Now listen to this. You will see me when all is ready. Come at once. F.H.M. Now, my theory all along has been that Lady St. Simon was decoyed away by Flora Miller. No doubt with confederates. Her initials were on this note. It was no doubt slipped into the bride's hand at the door, and it lured her into their reach. <laughs> very good, Lestrade. You know, you really are very fine indeed. Do let me see it. <laughs> ah, this is indeed important. Oh, you find it so? Extremely. I congratulate you warmly. Well, then, well, you're looking on the wrong side. On the contrary, this is the right side. The right side? You're mad. The note is written in pencil on the back. Quite. And over here is what appears to be a fragment of a hotel bill. It interests me deeply. Oh, there's nothing in that. I looked at it before. I've seen nothing in that. Very likely not. It's most important all the same. As to the note, it's important also, or at least the initials are. So I congratulate you again. Oh, I wasted time enough. I believe in hard work, not sitting by the fire spinning series. <laughs> we shall see who gets to the bottom of this first. Oh, <coughs> good day, Mr. Holmes. Oh, um, just one hint to you, Lestrade. Hmm? I will tell you the true solution of this matter. Lady St. Simon is a myth. There is not, and there has never been any such person. You're mad. Mad. <laughs> yeah, but there is something in what the fellow says about outdoor work, I think, Watson. Hmm. I must leave you to your papers for a little while. Well, well, Watson. They've laid the supper in my absence, I see. Well, I didn't know what it was all about. A confectioner's man came and set it all out. Cold woodcock, pheasant, pate de foie gras pie... Some rather exciting-looking bottles. Said they'd been paid for in order to this address. Capital. He's laid for five. You seem to expect company. Uh, yes, I fancy we may have some company dropping in. Mm. I'm surprised Lord St. Simon has not already arrived. Ah, I fancy I hear his step on the stairs now. Oh, so my message reached you then, Lord St. Simon. Yes, and I must confess, the contents startled me beyond measure. Have you good authority for what you say? The best possible. What will the Duke say? What's he to think when he hears that one of the family has been subjected to such humiliation? It's the purest accident. You look on these things in a very different way. I can hardly see how the lady could have acted otherwise. Her abrupt method of doing it was undoubtedly to be regretted. But having no mother, she had no one to advise her at such a crisis. It was a slight, sir. A public slight. You must make allowance for this poor girl placed in so unprecedented a position. I will make no allowance. I am very angry indeed. I have been shamefully used. Ah, there's the bell. If I cannot persuade you to take a lenient view, Lord St. Simon, I have brought an advocate here who may be more successful. Uh, come in, please, do. Lord St. Simon, allow me to introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. Francis A. Moulton. The lady I think you have already met. Good Lord. Howdy. You're angry, Robert. Oh, well, I guess you've every cause to be. Pray make no apologies to oh, me. Oh, yeah, I know I treated you real bad. I should have spoken to you before I went, but 
Well, I was kind of rattled from the time I saw Frank here again. I just didn't know what I was doing or saying. I only wonder I didn't fall down and do a faint right there before the uh, altar. Mrs. Milton, perhaps you would like my friend and me to leave the room while you explain this matter. If I may give an opinion, we've had just a little too much secrecy over this matter already. Oh, For my part, I'd like all Europe and America to hear the rights of it. Then I'll tell our story right away. Frank and I met in 81 in McGuire's camp, near the Rockies, where Pa was working a claim. We were engaged, Frank and I, but one day Pa struck a rich pocket and made a pile, while poor Frank here had a claim that came to nothing. The richer Pa grew, the poorer Frank got. So at last, Pa wouldn't hear of our engagement lasting any longer, and he took me away to Frisco. Frank wouldn't throw in his hand, though. You bet. Frank followed me, and he saw me without Pa knowing. He said he'd go back, and he'd make his pile, too, and he wouldn't come to claim me till he had as much as Pa. So I promised I'd wait for him till the end of time and not to marry anyone else as long as he lived. So I said, why shouldn't we be married straight away, then? Then I'll feel sure of you. But I won't claim to be your husband till I come back. Well, we talked it over, see, and we just went to a clergyman and did it right there. Good Lord. Well, the next I heard of Frank, he was in Montana, and then in New Mexico, and then there was a newspaper story about how a miner's camp had been attacked by Apache Indians, and there was Frank's name among the killed. I was sick for months. There was never another word of Frank after that. Well, you see, I was... Hold on, dear. Well, I felt all the time that no man on this earth could ever take Frank's place in my heart. But I meant to make Robert just as good a wife as it was in me to be. Oh, you imagine what I felt first as I came to the altar rails. There was Frank, standing, looking at me out of the first pew. Well, I thought it was his ghost at first. I looked again, and there he was still with a... With a kind of a question in his eyes. Oh, well, I didn't know if to stop the service and make a scene in the church. What the clergyman was saying was just like a bee buzzing in my ears. I scribbled her a note. Yeah, and on the way out again, I saw the piece of paper in his hand, and I knew it was for me. So I passed the pew, and I dropped my bouquet over, and he slipped the note into my hand when he gave it back. You never doubted for a moment that your first duty now was to him. Well, of course. Well, I, I told my maid to say nothing, get a few things packed. I'd made up my mind to run away and explain afterwards. Well, I hadn't been at the table ten minutes when I saw Frank out in the road, and I slipped out and I followed him into the park. Oh, some woman came up talking something about Lord St. Simon, but I managed to get away from her. I caught up with Frank, and we took a cab to his place in Gordon Square, and, well, and that was my true wedding. After all those years. You see, I'd been a prisoner with those Apaches all the time. When I got back to Frisco, I saw in a paper about this other wedding. I just got to England in time. Frank was all for being open and telling what had happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I was so ashamed, thinking of all those lords and ladies waiting at that table for me to come back. So Frank took my wedding things and he dropped them anywhere in the park. He thought they wouldn't be found. We were off to Paris, France tomorrow. Only, only this gentleman, Mr. Holmes, came around. Yes. <laughs> well, Robert, you've heard it all. I'm very sorry if I've given you any pain. Uh, 
I hope you don't think very meanly of me. Excuse me, but it isn't my custom to discuss my most intimate personal affairs in this public manner. Oh, then you won't forgive me. You won't shake hands before I go. Oh, certainly, if it'll give you any pleasure. Ah. I had hoped that you would have joined us in a friendly supper. I think that there you ask a little too much. I may be forced to acquiesce in these recent developments. I can hardly be expected to make merry over them. I think that, with your permission, I will now wish you all a very good night. Then I trust that you, at least, will honor us with your company, Mr. and Mrs. Bolton. It is always a joy to be to meet an American, Mr. Bolton. Well, that's nice of you, Mr. Holmes. Well, Watson, the case has been an interesting one. Yes. It shows how simple the explanation may be of an affair which seems almost inexplicable at first sight. You had no doubt, then? From the first, two facts were obvious to me. One was that the lady was quite willing to undergo the marriage ceremony. The other was that she had repented of it within a few minutes of returning home. But she could not have spoken to anyone when she was out, for she'd been in the company of the bridegroom. Had she seen someone, then? If she had, it must have been someone from America. Then who could this American be? He might be a lover, he might be a husband. Mm. For instance, Simon told us of a man in the pew and the change in our manner and that transparent device of dropping her bouquet. Well, it all became absolutely clear. Especially in view of that allusion of hers to claim jumping, which in miners' talk means taking possession of that which another person has a prior claim to. It was clear to me that she'd gone off for the man, and the chances were in favor of his being a husband. And how in the world did you find them? Friend Lestrade held information in his hands and didn't know the value of it. The initials on the note were of the highest importance, of course, but it was more valuable still to know that within a week, the man had settled his bill at one of the most select London hotels. But how did you deduce the select? Hmm? By the select prices. Eight shillings for a bed and eightpence for a glass of sherry pointed to one of the most expensive hotels. Well, there are not many in London which charge at that rate. Thank goodness. In the second one I visited in Northumberland Avenue, I learned by an inspection of the book that Francis H. Moulton, an American gentleman, had left only the day before. On looking over the entries against him, I came upon the very items I'd seen in the duplicate bill. His letters were to be forwarded to 226 Gordon Square. So thither I travelled. The loving couple were fortunately at home, and I ventured to give them some paternal advice. I invited them to meet Lord St. Simon here, and to make their position a little clearer. Yes, but with no very good results. His conduct was certainly not very gracious. Oh, my dear Watson... Perhaps you would not be very gracious either if after all the trouble of wooing and wedding you found yourself deprived in an instant of wife and fortune. Yes, I suppose so. Now, I think we may judge Lord St. Simon very mercifully and thank our stars that we're never likely to find ourselves in the same position. Now, draw up your chair. Oh, and hand me my tobacco. In The Noble Bachelor by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the part of Sherlock Holmes was played by Carlton Hobbs, Dr. Watson by Norman Shelley, Lord St. Simon by William Eadle, and Lestrade by Frederick Treves. The story was adapted for radio by Michael Hardwick and produced in London by Frederick Bradnam. <laughs> Thank you.
second episode of Sherlock Holmes Radio this evening, we once again return to the CBS Mystery Theater from the 1970s. Uh, they adapted a number of Sherlock Holmes stories during the course of that very long-running series, and uh, so far, all of them have been absolute joys. Uh, everyone that we've tried has been a blast. So, uh, in this case, uh, once again, uh, hewing to your theme of uh, having it, having the story to have something to do with an American, which is the second story? That would be a scandal in Bohemia. Not to be outdone here, they do a fine they do a fine job here. But this is a this one's adapted pretty frequently. Uh, uh, there are some stories that are adapted over and over and over again. This one's done pretty regularly, and maybe it is because of a specific character within the story, I would guess. Yes. That, um, and I, I, I sometimes I'm, I'm baffled by this. You'll, you'll hear it pronounced Irene or Irene Adler. Yeah. And, of course, that is the woman. And when I was looking at this and saying, okay, how am I going to wedge Americans in here? I thought... Oh, you're so stupid. <laughs> Irene Adler is American, yeah. The uh, most, arguably the most known and well-known character from the canon is Irene Adler, the, the woman. And guess where she's from? Uh, Brooklyn. No, <laughs> I don't remember, actually. New Jersey. Oh, oh I was close. <laughs> well, it's, it certainly had to be the coast. <laughs> Talking about the 1800s, she's not going to be from Colorado <laughs> or Missouri. Yeah. So there you go. It was like, wow, that was that was easy. But my hard part came when you're right. There are lots of different adaptations of oh, this. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I listened to lots of them, several of them, and I was torn. I had it narrowed down to three: the one that we're going to do, and then uh, one that w- had. Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone in oh, it, okay, yeah. and was sponsored by Petri Wine. <laughs> but would have had to have been shorter than this, because <laughs> that's the joy of CBS Mystery Theater, is it had an hour-long time slot, which means that once you extract all the commercials and all the, mm-hmm. the, the stuff in between, it's it's about 45 minutes of material. So that gives you a lot of time to cover this story, and it is a, it's a bulkier story than some of the short stories, so it, it kind of needs that room to spread out a little bit. Right. And the last one was the BBC adaptation. Um, and they all have, they're all really good. I mean, we, you know, I love, you know, Basil and, and Bruce. Um, and they do a really good job in the one that they do. But you're right. Uh, some of it, some of the really good stuff gets completely kind of excised yeah, to save on time. Uh, and, and it's laid out a little bit different, but it does have a, a if you want to listen to that one too, it's a very good adaptation. Um, the one, the other one that we did not do, the BBC, um, it is, it is a, a little bit different and I like the flavor of it. Um, you mean from the, uh, the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. radio series? Okay. Right. Uh, because in that one. The the one we're gonna do in the Petri one when it they kind of I'm I can't help it I always just <laughs> it's just call it Rathbone for God's sake don't call it the Petri wine Sherlock Holmes story God save me <laughs> sorry I just love that I love the Petri wine but anyway sorry um the the one from the BBC the first two that I listened to the the uh, CBS mystery 
and the Rathbone, um, they really didn't get too emotional. They didn't show much on how Sherlock might have been attracted or felt about Irene or Irene Adler. But the last one, um, you you really kind of get a, a... You mean in this one? No, the, the one that we didn't do. Oh, okay, okay. You The one at the BBC that I didn't do. The 50s series, yeah. okay. The, uh, it, it has a little bit more of that in there. He's a little bit... He's more emotional? More vocal. Okay. Or there's a couple of lines that actually lean towards you thinking he might be attracted to this woman. But uh, it, but it's, it's, it doesn't have some of the things that the one we're going to do has. The CBS mystery um, version was allowed to be a little bit longer, I assume, because it's the one I listened to was at least 44 minutes long. Yeah. And you get all of the little Sherlock tidbits and you get the G. Marshall additives. And so in, when, I, when it came down to it, it's like, well, yeah, I've got to go with that one because it's got all of the little pieces that I like from the various scripts. And it's got that those extra bonus pieces. Well, cool, cool, cool. Um, of course, in this, once again, we have Kevin McCarthy, who is an American actor doing, uh, doing his Sherlock Holmes and uh, not putting, you know, like a big... British accent on things, but I do believe the actor who plays his Watson, uh, Court Benson, he is a British actor, um, but he was a regular voice actor. He did a lot of voice work. Kevin McCarthy did a fair amount of voice work as well, but of course he did lots and lots of movies and television. Court Benson did 179 episodes of the CBS Mystery Theater. That's a lot. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he did a lot of television, uh, most, but he was mostly a voice actor. He showed up on uh, like 18 episodes of The Doctors in the mid-60s, uh, uh, playing a reoccurring role there. But uh, in general, these are not. Uh, he is not a face that you would necessarily know, but uh, boy, you've, if you listen to old-time radio, you've probably heard his voice. And of course, Kevin McCarthy, once you put a name to that face and a face to that voice, you remember him all of the time. But the uh, the joys of this is that it is a, it, it's a longer adaptation of the story. It really is, allows it to uh, to dig into it and and kind of really cover cover the whole story in a way that I, I really found I, I, f- I found to be uh, really effective. I have to I have to say so. Uh, good choice in my opinion. So with that, we will adjourn to uh, CBS Mystery Theater from 1977. Enjoy a scandal in Bohemia. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. Visit a museum to look at paintings. Some very few of them are referred to as having been painted by old masters. Applying the criteria to detectives, there would be only one who could properly be called the old master. He is, of course, Sherlock Holmes. But how many of you know that Sherlock Holmes once failed? Yes, failed in an assignment. An assignment that involves a faith and history of two European countries. 
There is no other way, Boris. She must be kidnapped. And then? Forced to tell where she's hidden it. You are speaking of torture. I am speaking of overthrowing a government. Torture, murder, abduction. These are words for the weak. We must be strong and we must not fail. drama, A Scandal in Bohemia, was adapted from the Sherlock Holmes classic, especially for the Mystery Theater, by Murray Burnett, and stars Kevin McCarthy. It is sponsored in part by X-Lax and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Once upon a time, there was a couple with entirely different tastes. One liked exotic things. I'll have a banana split with chicken livers. While the other was practical and down to earth. Uh, American cheese on white. Invariably, the exotic things she liked, he hated. Oh, look at this, a corduroy rug. Don't you just love it? No. And the practical things he liked, she loathed. I love it. I hate it. This went on at length until one day, after disagreeing on how to get there... It's right, left. They went to a Buick dealer and were invited to inspect the Buick Skyhawk. She found the low, lean styling and things like the bucket seats and standard four-speed manual transmission exciting and exotic. Oh, it's so exciting and exotic. While he found the V6 engine, the practical hatchback, very down-to-earth. Oh, how practical and down-to-earth. Unfortunately, while they agreed on a Skyhawk, they couldn't agree on which Skyhawk. Air conditioning. Heater. White walls. Black walls. Home wheels. Upcaps. I want a stereo. We have a radio at home. Buick Skyhawk. It's exotic. It's practical. It's a little Buick for everybody. I'll drive. Uh, I'll drive. No, no, I'll drive. I'll drive. I'm driving. Sherlock Holmes looked upon love as a nuisance, an emotion that could only unbalance the beautiful analytic machinery of the mind, or, as his creator, A. Conan Doyle, put it, grit in a sensitive instrument. And yet, there was one woman Sherlock Holmes might have loved. She appears in this story, faithfully and fully depicted by the admirable Watson. Immediately after my marriage, I, I'd seen little of Sherlock Holmes. All I knew about my former friend and companion was what I read of his exploits in the daily press. One night in 1888, I was returning from seeing a patient. My way led through Baker Street, and I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again. I rang the bell of the well-remembered door, and shortly thereafter was greeted by my friend in the sitting room. Wedlock suits you, Watson. <laughs> I think you've put on seven and a half pounds since I last saw you. Hi, <laughs> Joe. Seven. Mm -hmm. And you've resumed your medical practice. You didn't tell me you were going back into harness. Well, then how did you know it? I see it. I deduce it. How do I know that you've been getting yourself very wet lately and that you've a most clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, this is too much. Mm. Had you lived a few centuries ago, you would certainly have been burned at the stake. Well, it's true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in a dreadful mess. But as I've changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduced it. As to our girl, Mary Jane, <laughs> she's incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But then again, I fail to see how you work it out. It's simplicity itself. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, huh? just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six parallel cuts. 
Now, obviously, they've been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped around the edges of the sole to remove the crusted mud from it. Oh, it should. Hence my double deduction that you've been out in wet weather and that you have a particularly careless servant. Dash it all. You always make it sound so simple. But how about my resuming my medical practice? Oh, come, Watson. If a gentleman walks into my room smelling of iodoform with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger and a bulge on the right side of his top hat showing where he secreted his stethoscope, I must be a dull dog indeed if I don't pronounce him an active member of the medical profession. <laughs> Each time you explain your process, it appears that anyone can do it. And I know my eyes are quite as good as yours. Of course. You see, but you do not observe. Huh? By the way, you may be interested in this, which came by the last post. Read it. <clears throat> there will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Mm. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe has shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber then at that hour and do not take it amiss if your visitor wears a mask. This is indeed most mysterious, Holmes. What do you imagine it means? Mm, well, it's a capital mistake to theorize before you have data, but we do have the note itself. What do you deduce from it? Well, the man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do. This paper can't be bought under half a crown a packet. It's peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar? That's the very word. Hold it up to the light and tell me what you make of the initials woven into the texture of the paper. Uh. I make out a large E, a small G, a capital P, and a large G, and a small T. No doubt the name of the maker, perhaps his monogram. Not at all. The large G with the small T stands for Gesellschaft, which is German for company. It's a customary contraction. P, of course, stands for Papier. And now for the E-G, let's take a look at our continental gazetteer. Eglau, Eglonitz, here we are. Egria. It's a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Karlsbad. Oh. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wallenstein and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Now, Watson, what do you make of it? Oh, paper was made in Bohemia. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Well, that's only a possibility, Holmes. He could have purchased the paper. No, 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 Watson. Note the peculiar construction of the sentence. This account of you we have from all quarters received. A Frenchman or a Russian could never have written that. Only a German is so uncourteous to his verbs as to place them at the very end of a sentence. It remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And, if I'm not mistaken, he's arriving now. Holmes pressed me to stay. 
I remained seated, and Holmes opened the door to admit a man who was at least six foot six, with the limbs and chest of a Hercules. He was dressed so richly as to be considered almost in bad taste. He topped off his rich costume with a black vizard mask, which he'd evidently just adjusted as he entered. He spoke with a German accent, looking from one of us to another as if uncertain which one to address. You had my note. I told you that I would call. Pray take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally kind enough to help me with my cases. Whom do I have the honor to address? Uh, You may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. Mm -hmm. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of most extreme importance. (laughs) If not, I must communicate with you alone. It's both or none. You may say before this gentleman... Anything which you may say to me. And I must begin by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, the matter will be of no importance. At the moment, it is not too much to say that it is of such weight it may have an influence upon European history. I promise. And I... You will excuse this mask... The august person who employs me wishes his agent to be unknown to you. And I confess at once that the title by which I call myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it. Every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families. To speak plainly, the matter involves the great house of Ormstein... Hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that. You surprise me. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, I should be better able to advise you. You are right. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed, your majesty had not spoken four words before I was aware that I was addressing Wilhelm Gottsreich von Ormstein, Grand Duke of Kassel-Felstein... And hereditary king of Bohemia. And you can understand I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet the matter is so delicate I cannot confide in an agent without putting myself in his power. I come incognito from Prague to consult you. Then pray consult. Briefly, these are the facts. Some years ago, during our lengthy visit to Warsaw... I made the acquaintance of a well-known adventuress, Irene Adler. Name is no doubt familiar to you. Will you be so kind as to look her up in my index, Doctor? Oh, yes, gladly, Holmes. Your index is complete, Holmes, but not in the best of order. So I'm glad that her name starts with an A. Yes, she is. Thank you. Now, let me see. Mm. Born in New Jersey, 1858... Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw, Contralto, retired from the stage, living now in London. Uh, quite so. Thank you, Doctor. And now Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now anxious to get these letters back. Precisely so. Mm-hmm. But how did you... Was there a secret marriage? Oh, of course not. Legal papers? Certificates? None. Well, then I fail to follow Your Majesty. 
If this person should produce her letters for blackmail or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is writing. Proof. Forgery. My private notepaper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. We were both in the picture. Oh, dear. That is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. And so, as this story, A Scandal in Bohemia, shows, Holmes was not unknown to royalty. And royalty, despite masks, could not stay unknown to Holmes. We'll be back with the pressing problem of the King of Bohemia and meet Irene Adler, the woman, shortly. Only Jack Higgins, author of The Eagle Has Landed, could write this startling new bestseller. Storm warning. In 1944, an old wooden sailing vessel secretly slips out of Brazil, carrying five nuns and 22 men in a life-and-death struggle to reach Germany. In this epic story of reckless courage, they race across 5,000 miles of storm-swept ocean and past the waiting guns of the enemy. Read Storm Warning by Jack Higgins, a phantom book where paperbacks are sold. gets that opportunity. But if we could all sign our work, chances are we'd do everything we could to make that work stand out. And if that could happen, America would be miles ahead. Because with every product and service worth more, every job would be worth more. We'd be a stronger, richer country. So if you can see a way to do your job a little bit better, do it. And be proud enough of what you do to sign your name. And encourage others to do the same thing. America works best message is from the National Center for Productivity and Quality of Working Life and the Advertising Council. The writer was Ed Hatcher, the producer Ray Johnson, music director Joe Gray, and our spokesman Peter Graves. Sherlock Holmes in love? Perish the thought. And yet, of all the tales of Sherlock Holmes, as recorded by his friend, Dr. Watson, there's no other adventure in which he expresses as much admiration for a woman as he does for Irene Adler. And keep in mind, she came to his attention not as a client, but as an adversary. But it's best we let Watson continue the story. I was watching His Majesty's face. The moment Holmes said he'd committed a serious indiscretion, his face flashed. I was mad, insane. But remember, I was a young crown prince then. I didn't realize the consequences. Mm, it must be recovered. Don't you think we have tried and failed? Then it must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen then? Five attempts at obtaining the photograph have been made. Twice I had burglars ransack her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. The luggage was searched thoroughly. Twice she has been waylaid and her purse taken of her has been no result. Mm -hmm. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? Ruin me. How? I am about to be married. 
My fiancée is the second daughter of the king of Scandinavia. A shadow of a doubt as to my youthful conduct would end the engagement and bring about some very serious side effects as well. And Irene Adler? Threatens to send the photograph. Uh-huh. And I know she will do as she says. Rather than I should wed another, there are no lengths to which she will not go. None. You're sure she hasn't sent it yet? I am certain. Mm-hmm. On what do you base this certainty? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Then we still have three days. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present. Oh, certainly. You will find me at the Langham under the name Count von Kram. Mm-hmm. Watson, would you take down the lady's address when His Majesty gives it to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, Bryony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Very good. And now, good evening, Your Majesty. I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. asked me to come around the next day at three. When I arrived, he wasn't there. He'd run into unexpected complications that I was to hear about when he returned shortly after four. Well, accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers and the use of disguises, I had to look more than once to make certain that the drunken-looking, ill-kempt, side-whiskered groom was indeed he. <laughs> Watson... I'm sure you could never guess how I employed my morning or what I ended by doing. Well, I, I, I suppose you've been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler. Quite so. I can tell you that we are not the only ones after that photograph. Well, you mean the king has employed others in the same capacity as you? Mm, I think not. But let me give you a picture of the day's happenings. Uh. I left the house a little after eight this morning disguised as a groom seeking work. Irene Adler has turned all the men's heads around Bryony Lane. After giving a few of the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses, I came upon a character who seemed equally interested in the topic of Miss Irene Adler as I. We fell into a conversation as he bought me a glass of half and half in a neighboring pub. Here's to the ladies, God bless them. And to Miss Irene Adler in particular. <laughs> May they all be as beautiful as she and as rich. She's well off then. No, you seem like the kind of person of broken trust. Are you trustworthy, mate? Ah, it all depends. There might be a lot of reasons for you to be trustworthy if you don't mind taking a few risks. It all depends on what kind of risks you're talking about. Oh, nothing very big. Just helping out a little with the job we have in mind. Hmm? Who's we? I don't like working blind. I have to know what kind of job you're talking about. Well, <laughs> You might say it was a kind of a lark. With the lady who lives at Bryony Lodge? Yeah, you're a sharp one, you are. That's the very one. Just a bit of a lark, that's all. The reason I picked you, mate, was because you have an honest face and showed a lot of interest in the lady yourself. You see, I was listening to you, mate. I thought it might be a good burst for me. What I have in mind might pay you a lot better. Ah, uh, how much are we talking about? Fifty pounds. Fifty? You didn't think I had an honest vice? You thought I had a stupid vice? 
Now, let me tell you, mate, I don't go for the rough stuff, so you can forget about me right now. The 50 ain't all for you. I need four or five boys who don't mind creating a bit of a dust-up around Bryony Lodge, and I need them tomorrow. Mm, good luck. I ain't going to be one of them. I was thinking you'd get them for me. You look like a fellow who might know some chaps who don't mind a bit of fun and... You keep on about a bit of fun. Yes, you keep on and on about that. And your idea of fun and mine might not be the same, if you know what I mean. Well, you heard what all the grooms were saying about Mademoiselle's boyfriend, the one who visits her so frequent. I. Well, his best friend wants to play a little joke, you see. <laughs> sort of stage kidnapping. Not a real one, of course, but... Me and my partner will spirit her away, and then her boyfriend's pal sort of says, April Fool, <laughs> and the joke's over. Don't sound very funny to me. A uh, real gent's idea of fun is different than you and me. Well, mate, what do you say? By Jove, Holmes, this fellow sounds a proper villain. What did you say? Accepted his offer, of course. And got myself 25 pounds in advance. But Holmes, you can't possibly be contemplating doing what this fellow asks. Surely you must see that he, he, he he's not joking. That, that he means to abduct Miss Adler. Of course, but you haven't allowed me to finish my day's adventures. The last part caps it all. After striking the bargain with this scoundrel, I set off on my own to take a closer look at Bione Lodge and see how I could best turn these events to our advantage when a handsome cab clattered up to the lady's door and a dark, handsome gentleman jumped out. Wait for me, driver. I won't be a moment. He was as good as his word. A few minutes later, he came down the steps, ran down, jumped into the cab and shouted, Drive like the devil. First the Gross and Hankies in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in 20 minutes. He and his hansom were hardly out of sight before a neat little landau drew up before the house, and I had my first glimpse of Miss Irene Adler as she rushed from the house. The Church of St. Monica, John, and half a sovereign if you can reach it in 20 minutes. This was quite too good to lose, so while I was debating whether or not to make a run for it, and perched behind her landau, a cab came down the street. Before the driver could object to my shabby appearance, I jumped in, showed him a coin, and, parrot-like said, the Church of St. Monica and half a sovereign if you make it in 20 minutes. But this is absurd, Jeff. You're naughty not to have thought of it. Everything was being done on such a rush, darling. I, I never thought about a witness. Uh, well, here. This nice-looking gentleman, he'll do. Oh, thank heaven. Thank the Lord. Uh, come on, man. What? What do you want? A witness. A witness to our marriage. And we not only thank you, but we thank St. Monica. <laughs> It was the most preposterous position I've ever found myself in my life. The bride gave me a sovereign, and I mean the word, on my watch chain in memory of the occasion. <laughs> but doesn't this sudden marriage threaten everything? It certainly seemed to menace our plan seriously. However, when they separated at the church door, I heard her tell him that she would drive out in the park at five as usual. So then I went off and made my own arrangements for tonight. Huh. Which are? To be revealed to you after some cold beef and a glass of beer to fortify ourselves for this evening's work. I don't like 
like it, Ferenc. It's dangerous. Boris, it's our only alternative. To rely on this half-drunken groom you meet in a bar? I've already explained to you he was interested in Bryony Lodge and Miss Adler. Can we trust him? Of course not. But we can rely on his greed. You didn't see the way he snatched the 25 pounds advance. I still do not like it. Oh, I grant it's not ideal, but there's very little risk. Once we have the lady and the cabbage, we drive off. What can he tell the police? Everything. Which is little enough. He doesn't even know my name. He's never seen you. In half an hour, we'll be safely hidden. And I promise you'll have the location of the photograph out of her before the search has had time to get organized. Now that the inner man's been satisfied, Watson, let's set our plans. I shall need your cooperation. Oh, I, I, I shall be delighted. Now, Miss Adler always returns from her drive in the park at 7. We must be on hand to meet her. I've already engaged the services of several stout lads who will create the uproar that I promised my companion in the pub. What if you're not going to throw in with those villains after all? Oh, only to the extent of creating a disturbance, which I intend to put to our advantage, of course. My lads are instructed to see that on no account will the lady be taken. But uh, won't the other people know that? In the confusion, they'll only know that their plans have gone awry. <sighs> Have you any idea who they are or what they want with the photograph? Uh, only that they've definitely not been hired by His Majesty. As to the rest, I can hazard a guess or two. Either they want the photograph to extort a pretty penny from His Majesty or from some political purpose. In either case, it doesn't matter. What is important is your role. Oh, well, I'm impatient to hear it. There will be some unpleasantness, but on no account are you to interfere... I promise you it will all end with my being conveyed into the lady's sitting room. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that window. Uh, is that all? No, by no means. Now, I have here an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket fitted with a self-igniting cap at either end. You will throw this through the open window into the room at the same time raising a good loud cry of fire. Understood? Uh, yeah, yes, but... I, I, I haven't finished, sorry. Your cry will then be taken up by a considerable number of people in the street. Then your part is finished. Walk to the end of the street where I will rejoin you in... Ten minutes. Claire? <clears throat> For the life of me, I, I can't see how you know you'll be taken into the room and, and, and the window open. Well, the explanation will have to wait because now I, I must change for my new role. To my astonishment, when Holmes came out from his chamber, he was dressed as an elderly clergyman. And once again, I thought, what a fine actor the stage had lost when he elected to become a consulting detective. We shortly afterwards were pacing up and down outside Irene Adler's house in St. John's Wood. Ah, I see that my lads are all in position. And so are you, Watson, because here we are outside the sitting room window. And you promised to explain to me how you're going to get yourself inside and have the window open. All in good time. But the key question remains, where do we find the photograph? <laughs> Probably at her bank or her attorney's. No, I think neither. It's much too precious for her to have it out of her possession. 
It's in the house. But it's been burgled twice. Sure, they didn't know how to look. Well, how will you look? I'll get her to show me. Oh, ridiculous. She's bound to refuse. She won't be able to. <laughs> Incredible. It will all be clear to you, but we have no more time. It's almost the hour. I think I see her carriage in the distance. Now, carry out my order to the letter. Understanding of Holmes' scheme when I return with Act Three. When it's so hot, stepping outside is like stepping into a blast furnace. That's the time for country time. Country time, country time. Tastes like that good old fashioned lemonade. Country time lemonade flavor drink mix. Not too tart, not too sweet. Natural lemon flavor. When you've got a thirst for the taste of good old fashioned lemonade. Country time. Americans still care about their country, and they care about one another. Americans learned many lessons while celebrating the bicentennial. Reverend Lawrence McNamara reflects on one lesson. In 1976, we rediscovered that it's okay to feel good about ourselves as long as we're honest. We know we have problems individually and as a people, but we also know that we can and will do something about them. This includes our determination to do something about poverty in America, to change the things that keep 40 million people locked in a cycle of loneliness, hunger, powerlessness. We know we can't eliminate poverty overnight or acting alone, but we can work at it with others. Start with your local church, synagogue, or community agency. Like the people who started this country and who helped it grow, Americans today are looking for a new start. So let's begin again together. Campaign for Human Development, United States Catholic Conference. At the very beginning of this story, I spoke of the possibility of Sherlock Holmes being in love. You may wonder how anyone could fall in love with a woman whom he's seen only once, and then at her hurried wedding. But there's more to come. And if I may borrow from the master, all in good time. Now let's rejoin Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Holmes, artfully disguised as an elderly clergyman, and I strolled up and down in front of Irene Adler's house in St. John's Wood. Holmes called my attention to the unusually large amount of activity in the street. Well, I reminded him that he told me they were mostly his men. Not all, Watson. See that scissors grinder over there? Yes. That's the rogue who hired me in the pub. Ha. I see him looking around, trying to find me. I'm sure he also has an accomplice or two among these passers-by. But the lady will be safe. Well, I certainly hope so. Now, it may appear that some of my blood will be spilled. But rest assured, my dear fellow, that things aren't always what they seem. There. 
There's the lovely Irene Adler's carriage now. I'm off. Remember my instructions. The carriage had hardly come to a stop before I saw the scissors grinder spring forward and snatch the handle to open the door. At the same time, the loungers went into action and Irene Adler's carriage was surrounded by a score of yelling, cursing men. into the crowd, which seemed to make way for him, as he cried out, You rogues! Villains! How dare you assault a lady! Then, suddenly, I saw him clap a hand on his nose, and he was down, with a blood stream coming from his nose. Before he fell, I heard a policeman's whistle, and a number of the loafers took to their heels. Irene Adler had hurried up the steps, but then stood at the top. Looking back into the street, she called out... That gentleman hurt? He needs help. Well, he can't lie here in the street. Uh, uh, bring him in. There's a comfortable sofa in my sitting room. We'll get a doctor. Slowly and solemnly, Holmes was carried into Bryony Lodge and placed carefully on the sofa. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds hadn't been drawn so I could see him as he lay on the couch. This truly, wondrously beautiful woman bending tenderly over him. After a moment or two, I saw him raise himself with some difficulty, and they began talking. He later told me how the conversation went. I don't think you should sit up. I'm quite all right, dear lady. I'm more concerned about you. Oh, thanks to your bravery, oh. I just had an unpleasant moment. Oh, <sighs> What is it? What is mm. it? Nothing to be alarmed about, I'm sure, but if I could have some air... Oh, of course. Marie, mm. open the windows. As the maid opened the window, I saw Holmes raise his hand. The moment her back was turned, I tossed the rocket into the room and shouted, Fire! The cry was instantly taken up as thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out the window. I slipped through the crowd and made my way to the end of the street and waited. In ten minutes, I was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine, and we walked swiftly away from the scene. You did it very nicely, Doctor. Uh, Everything's right as rain. Uh, you have the photograph? I know where it is. Oh, how did you find out? As I told you, she showed me. Uh. I'm still in the dark. When a woman thinks her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing she values most. Our lady today had nothing more precious to her than the photograph that we seek. When the alarm of fire was raised, she rushed to secure it. Uh, and she did. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell pull. She was there in an instant, and I caught just a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. Yes. And now? We've almost reached our goal, and yet there's something gnawing at the back of my mind. Let me repeat the conversation that took place between us after it was discovered that the fire was only a false alarm. It may perhaps suggest something to you. My dear Reverend... Forsyth, madam. Madam? Oh, how very observant of you to notice my wedding ring. It's so new to me that Madam quite startled me. I apologize. I should certainly 
be unable to bear the thought of bringing you any further excitement or trouble. Oh, it has been a hectic five or ten minutes, Reverend. And I must thank you for your courage in coming to my aid. At your age, it might have been dangerous. It was only a Christian act, providential, that I happened to be passing. Heaven does seem to be looking after me and my belongings lately. Heaven looks after us all, dear lady. <laughs> Providence does seem to be taking a special interest in me. Only yesterday, when it appeared that my marriage might have to be put off because my future husband and I needed a witness there, quite providentially appeared a somewhat tipsy groom who served as a witness for us. And now, today, I'm almost set upon by a band of toughs and the Lord sends me an elderly but foolhardy minister who risks his life and limb for a strange lady. It does seem that you're blessed. And now, when for a moment it appeared that my house, with all its lovely furnishings, would be ravaged by fire, I am again saved when it proves to be a false alarm. <laughs> you may indeed consider yourself fortunate. But if you don't mind, I... I feel quite recovered. Oh, yes, of course. I'll have my coachman take you wherever you were going. I wouldn't think of it, dear madam. You've done quite enough for me as it is. I felt that it was wise to leave as quickly and with as little fuss as possible. And so I met with you. Well, then why this unease? From what you told me, you accomplished everything you set out to do. I did. And yet. Oh, hang it, man. It's just that there was something in her eyes. Oh, come now, Holmes. Don't tell me that you're mooning over a woman. Not at all, not at all. You misunderstand. But uh, here we are in crowded Baker Street. Do you have the key? Well, uh, of course not, dear me. I fear I'm getting somewhat absent-minded. Ah, here's the key. It slipped a little during all my exertions. Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Who's that? Oh, search me. Some young lad in an Ulster. He's just now hurrying off. I swear I've heard that voice before. I wonder who the deuce it could have been. Holmes took the puzzle of the voice to bed with him. He also invited me to spend the night because we were to be up so early the next morning. After sending a message off to my wife, I went to bed, and next morning around seven, we were engaged upon our toast and coffee when I inquired of Holmes the reason for our early rising. We're up at this hour, Watson, because the king shall be here shortly. His majesty. I thought it might give him some satisfaction to regain the photograph with his own hands. Oh, well, that still doesn't answer. The lady will probably not be up when we call. We shall be shown into the sitting room, and when she comes down, she may find neither us nor the photograph. You have really got it. Mm, not yet. But you have hopes. I have hopes. Ah, let come. I am more impatient to be gone. Ah, we must have a cab. No, my brougham is waiting. Ah, that simplifies matters. Come along, Watson. The game is truly afoot. ourselves in the king's carriage, spinning along toward Bryony Lodge and Irene Adler. Irene Adler is married, your majesty. Married? Mm. When? Yesterday. But to whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. Impossible. I was a witness to the wedding. Oh, that is not what I meant. She could not love him. I'm in hopes that she does. 
and why in hope? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's nuptial plans. Uh, well, what you say is true. And yet... Uh, you still have doubts. Oh, not about the truth of what you said. It, uh, it is just that I wish she had been of my own station. What a queen she would have made. After that statement, the king relapsed into a somewhat moody silence. When we drew up in front of Bryony Lodge, the door was open and Marie, the maid, stood upon the steps. She watched us with a curious expression as we stepped from the brougham and approached the door. You are Mr. Sherlock Holmes? I am Mr. Holmes. Your mistress said you would, how uh, you say, come to call. She did? Where is... Well, she left this morning with her husband by the 515 train from Charing Cross. She goes to Paris and then for a continental tour. You mean to tell me that she has left the country? Oui. Never to return. The photograph. All is lost. We shall see. Come. The three of us rushed past the demure maid, and Holmes led us to the bell pole, tore back the small sliding panel, and pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler, herself in the evening dress. The letter was inscribed to Sherlock Holmes, Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night. We all three crowded around together to read it. I swear that as we started, we could hear her voice. At least from the expression on Holmes's and His Majesty's faces, they could. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. You took me in completely. Until after the alarm of fire, I hadn't a suspicion. But then... Thinking how I had betrayed myself, I began to reflect. I had been warned about you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you. <laughs> Your address had been given to me. Yet with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious, I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind, old clergyman. But... As you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom it gives. I sent my coachman to watch you. I ran upstairs, got into what I call my walking clothes, and followed you. When I came to your door, I was convinced that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I, rather imprudently, wished you good night and started for the temple to meet my husband. We agreed that our best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist. So you will find the nest empty when you call. As to the photograph, your client may ease his mind. I love and am loved by a man better than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess. And I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, 
Irene Norton. Nay, Adler. What a woman. Oh, what a woman. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Mm. I'm sorry that I have been unable to bring this business to a successful conclusion. Oh, on the contrary, I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. You will please tell me how I may reward you. Oh, this uh, ring I take from my finger, I should be happy to. Your Majesty has something which I should value even more highly. Name it. This photograph. Irene's photograph? Yes. Ah. It is yours. Take it if you wish. Then I thank your majesty and wish you a very good morning. inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant
pleasant dreams. Okay, uh, <laughs> the Sherlock Holmes versus Irene Adler story told in 1977 by the CBS Mystery Theater. Ha! Thoroughly enjoyable stuff, as always. The third published Sherlock Holmes story. So, very interesting that early on, it feels like, uh, if you think about it in those terms, it feels like the uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes character and his uh, reticence to deal with the female gender uh, is fully in place, but uh, it's almost as if uh, he's, uh, Conan Doyle was setting up the character to have a frame of reference for why it would be dangerous to get anywhere near these uh, these tangly things with nails and teeth. So, yes, yes, yes. Well, but, but by the end of it, he's saying, basically, I will never, don't ever let me say again that, you know, make fun of women and their abilities because, you know. Because they're damn dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, so it, it's very obvious at the end. He's talking to Watson about, you know, at one point, you know, how very, uh, I want to say like a good adversary. adversary. He, ah, yes, a strong yes. adversary. And uh, also in other versions, he actually tells Watson, um, that's going to be the last time that I belittle a woman's abilities to do mysteries or to solve problems or to be... To be intellectually capable, essentially. Right. Yes, right. Yes, yes. He says, I'm not going to poke fun at him anymore. <laughs> Interesting. Well, once again, thank you, Beth, for picking these out and uh, letting us take a, a traipse through old-time radio with Sherlock Holmes. Um, there's so much Sherlock Holmes radio out there. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fun playing around with these as we go through this uh, this Universal Horror series. So, <laughs> once again, thank you for doing this. This little extra added bonus episode. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. Cool. And so with that, I guess we will say cheery bye and <laughs> we will talk to you again soon. The next episode will uh, the next episode of the Bloody Pit will shift gears into Antonio Margariti land. So be ready for that, folks. I am Rod Barnett and I am Beth Morris and we will talk to you again very soon. Aiming for the stars But landing on the clouds 